Hey everyone, welcome to Pocket Money and our very special end of financial year episode. 2020 has simultaneously felt like it's moved at lightning speed, but also dragged on for a good couple of decades. It turns out that it's already June, so that means that it's time to start thinking about the new financial year and tax time. I do know a lot of people who've been baking sourdough and doing some crazy stuff at home. And before you start sobbing into your sourdough, let's do something practical and get your tax return sorted. There have been a few changes to the way that we might be claiming this year if you're like me and Sal and the pocket money crew we're all working from home and have been since March and even if you haven't a lot of things are really different this year so you know beyond the usual tips we've got some extra tips for this very strange year we're living in right now to do that we've gathered together our team of experts at Finder who are going to give you their individual tips on how to make tax time a lot more bearable yeah and it's really handy for us because our guests really are the experts they're the ones who write all the reviews you read on finder the how-to guides and they really can answer all of your questions when it comes to managing your finances and wrangling your tax return this year whether you're wondering if you can claim you're working from home time this year on your tax return we're covering that we're talking about some of the best deals you can pick up in end of financial year sales because there's some mega sales going on this year or just the difference between lifetime health cover and the Medicare levy surcharge. I know they're pretty complicated. Plus, if you're looking at investing in property, we're diving deep into everything you're going to need to know for this very strange end of financial year. First up, we've got Alison Banny, our banking editor, talking to us all about claiming tax, using tax and superannuation. So let's jump into it. Thanks for coming on the show, Alison. Thanks for having me. So what's your number one tip for people who are claiming their tax time this year, especially with everything that's going on with COVID-19 and everybody working from home? The ATO this year has actually been quite generous and they've introduced a shortcut method for pretty much claiming all your um, home office running expenses. So if you're working at home, um, which a lot of people have been since about March, uh, you can claim 80 cents per hour, which is just a blanket a blanket rule to cover all your expenses, including electricity, so heating and cooling your apartment or your house, your home internet bills, even your home office setup if you've got furniture, your mobile phone plan if you use your mobile for work. So all you need to do is calculate how many hours you've spent working at home between 1st of March and the end of financial year, so um, end of June. And you can claim 80 cents per hour for all those things for every hour that you've worked. So it's a really, really generous allowance from the ATO because normally it's only about 52 cents per hour that you can claim. And Alison, is it right that it's usually a little more complex? You've got to work out exactly, you know, I think, is, is there a rule around, you know, you've got to have a dedicated space to work in and things like that. So this has really just removed all of that complexity this time around because so many people are working from home. Yeah, the ATO doesn't make it particularly easy to normally claim these sorts of things. So normally you'd have to sort of keep a log of all the hours you've worked from home and you'd have to calculate what percentage you use your um, mobile for work and what percentage you use it for personal use and those sorts of things. Um, yeah, and you need to have a, a home office space. But for this 80 cents per hour rule, none of that applies. So you do need to keep a log just in terms of pay slips or like diary notes or rosters, timesheets, anything like that, just to prove that you are in fact working from home in the hours that you say you are. But yeah, it's, it's pretty relaxed actually. So it's making it a lot easier for people. Another good thing they're doing is they're allowing 
if there's two of you working from home, say you and your partner or your roommate, you can both claim the 80 cents per hour. So you don't have to split that up. That's so awesome. Because I was wondering that because I know that you can, as well as the shortcut method, you can still choose the other option of like individually claiming those expenses. And I was wondering because my partner and I have been working from home together almost this whole time. And I was like, well, what's the best way? How am I going to get the best bang for my buck for all this money I've been spending while I've been working from home? Is it better to do the shortcut or to do it individually, but then we'd have to split it? You're still welcome to do the other way if you want. So the ATO is, it's still allowing you to do that. But yeah, I think 80 cents per hour, as I said, is pretty generous. The previous way was you can claim 52 cents per hour, or if you think um, it will be higher, you can actually work out how many hours you've worked and claim the percentage. So I think if you're doing really, really crazy hours and you're working 18 hours a day at home, maybe it would work out better to do it that way. But honestly, I think 80 cents per hour is going to be yeah, more than enough. So Alison, um, you've mentioned that this shortcut's made it a lot simpler this year. That's a good jumping off point for the old accountant versus do-it-yourself tax return. What would be your advice for people who are weighing up uh, which one to use? Anyone can do their tax for free online. Um, you just have to have a MyGov account. So you log on and, and lodge that for free. And that's a really good way for people. If you've got a really simple tax return, say you've just had one job throughout the year, you're just claiming your income tax, you don't have any deductions or anything like that, it's probably a good method. But if you do have a slightly more complex tax return, say you've done some freelance work throughout the year, that's you know added income, it's taxed at a, at a higher rate. Um, if you've got dividends or you know more of these complex working from home tax deductions you want to claim, or if you have investments like an investment property, um, you've got rental income from that, then yeah, an accountant is really going to be able to help you claim those properly and also maximize your refund because they just know the ins and outs of what you can claim and, and how to do it. And you can actually claim the accountant fee on tax. So kind of a win-win. You can't claim it this year though. So you have to claim it towards your tax return next financial year. So just yeah, keep your receipt. Always keep the receipts. And what about superannuation? Is there anything that we need to do around that? come end of financial year? Yeah, so there's nothing that you um, need to do really, but there are benefits if you want to add more to your super. So everyone's allowed to add about, I think it's $25,000 per year to their super, which is taxed at the concessional rate. So that's 15%. And for most people, that's going to be a lot lower than your standard tax rate. So you can look at how much your employer has contributed for you, which should be about 9.5% of your income for the year. And if you are able to claim more, then yeah, you can add say $10,000 to your super and then you can tell the ATO, hey, this is going to be taxed at the super rate of 15%. So let's exclude it from my um, tax return this year. So you're not paying tax twice. And then you're effectively getting a 10K tax deduction. You just have to remember to do it before the end of financial year if you want it to, to count as a tax deduction this financial year. So don't leave it till the 29th of June to do because <laughs> <laughs> it'll probably take a few days um, just to get that all sorted. And maybe a good reminder for um, getting it set up for next year as well. If you haven't done it, that's um, a good time to do it, isn't it? Alison, if you do get a tax return, what are you going to do with it? 
well, <laughs> the responsible Allison wants to say I'd um, do something with it, like put it into the share market, get a high return on it, put it in a savings account, earn some interest on it. Yeah, something like that. It's a really good time to be investing at the moment while the share market's still down a bit from its February peak. The irresponsible Allison <laughs> would probably go out and, I don't know, I think after lockdown, I'm really keen to go out, just spend it on some some nice restaurant meals, some nice wine, go out with friends and yeah, just have a nice night out. I vote irresponsible, Alison. We'll never get sensible, Alison, back at that rate. Who will give me tax advice? Um, <laughs> that's really good to know. And I think great advice because everything has changed so dramatically in the last couple of months. So definitely, yeah, I guess that, that one piece of advice is to make sure that if you're working from home, you get that bang for your buck, right? So aside from taxes and getting your money into order, the end of financial year is also a great time to pick up a sale. So we've got Alex Horrigan, our shopping content producer here, to give us some of her tips. How are y'all? How are you going? Great. Obviously, this time of year is usually a great time to pick up a bargain, but with COVID-19 and everything, a lot of people are tightening the purse strings. So what would be your tips? Um, I think you've hit the nail on the head there, Sal, that given the current climate, people really are tightening the purse strings, putting money into savings, and they're trying not to spend a lot. So every end of financial year has really good sales, but I think this year we're going to see bigger and better. Just expect bigger and better because they're going to be wanting to tempt you when they send you that newsletter in your emails or when you're scrolling through your social media and you see the big red sale sign, they're going to want you to have to stop scrolling. What are your tips, Alex? Obviously, there's going to be a lot of bargains to be had and it can be really tempting. What would be, A, your tips on what to buy that could be considered like an investment and B, like how do you get the best deal? You mentioned alerts or signing up for emails. What would be a couple of your top tips for this year? So the best things to buy during end of financial year sales are easily tech items such as laptops, gaming consoles and games, phones, tablets, home entertainment and audio. You seem to see the biggest slashes in prices across these products as well as home appliances like vacuums, fridges, dishwashers. Every end of financial year there's always some massive thing about a Dyson vacuum and every retailer will try to compete to have the best sale on these hot ticket items. But my hottest tip would be to research retailers. And don't forget about the retailers that offer the beat by X percent deals. So you'll often see a lot of retailers offer deals like, if you find a cheaper price, we'll beat it by 10%. And that also will apply to end of financial year sales. So if you can find a Dyson vacuum, for example, at Harvey Norman, but the good guys beat by X amount, go to them and try to get an even cheaper price on those products. And also look around for promo codes, whether it's from bloggers, influencers, as well as coupon code sites like Finder. They're a really good way to find extra deals on the prices and get a further deduction across them. I think that's a good point, especially with the tech items and stuff as well, because I'm sure a lot of people are investing in their home offices right now and need to buy new laptops and stuff like that. So if you are doing that, make sure to keep your receipts because you, of course, can claim them come tax time next year. 100%. And Alex, what do you plan to do with your tax return this year? Juicy answers only. 
I mean, last year I used my tax return for traveling. So I'm so sad this year. It just feels so painful. But you know what? It'll probably just go towards the disgusting amount of Uber Eats that I've been ordering because I'm not a very good cook. (laughs) I love that. Next up, we've got Kylie Purcell, and Kylie's our investments editor. There's been plenty of interest in the stock market and in investing um, in the last few months, and she's on the line to talk about what people need to think about if they've already got investments or you're thinking about it for next year. Kylie, what do people need to know when it comes to investing and the end of the financial year? Yeah, so if you're just starting out investing or you're just starting out buying shares, it's important to understand that any profits that you make from investing is considered part of your taxable income. So say you buy a share for a low price and then you sell it for a higher price, uh, you've got to pay capital gains tax on whatever profit that is. So any profits you make from shares is considered part of your taxable income, just the same as your regular salary. Yeah, so if there was one kind of point that I'd have, or one kind of tip that um, newbie investors should understand, it's that If you hold your shares for more than a year, you actually get a 50% discount on your capital gains tax. So for example, say I bought Afterpay shares for $27 this year, and then a few months later I sold them for $39, and I made, say, a profit of $1,000. And for the simplicity of this example, I've got an income tax rate of 30%. I'd need to pay $300 of taxes on that profit when it comes to tax time. But if I'd waited, say, a few more months, I'd only need to pay tax on 50% of that profit. So say I made $1,000, but I'd waited for more than a year before I sold those shares, then I'd only need to pay $150 in tax on that $1,000 profit as opposed to $300. So it's, it's really important to think about what your plan is when you're investing. Like if you're thinking about trading, like um, buying stocks and selling them a few months later, first of all, that's quite risky, but also uh, you don't get the tax benefits that you'd get for a long-term investment of 12 months or more. So that's probably my number one tip. So that makes sense with profits, but what about losses? Yeah, so any losses you make through shares will be used to offset the profits that you've made. So it it comes as a total. So when it comes to to tax time, you'll take your tax invoice from, say, Comsec or whatever broker you're from, and they'll just look at the profits, the total profits that you've made minus the losses. Okay, right. And what about franking credits? Because I know when we've spoken about this before, Kylie, you've brought that up. So what do we need to think about those when it comes to end of financial year? Yeah, franking credits are quite tricky to get your head around. Um, and they're also really controversial. So, well, franking credits, which are also called imputation credits, are a, basically a type of a tax break for shareholders. So they're credits which are offered to um, Australian investors that receive dividends from companies. Dividends are paid to shareholders by some companies if those companies have made a profit. Now, the idea behind franking credits is that because a company has already paid a 30% corporate tax on those profits, the shareholders then shouldn't have to pay a second lot of tax. If, say, for example, an investor has an income uh, tax rate of 40%, the company's paid 30%, you just then need to pay the difference between the 30 and the 40. The controversial bit 
is that franking credits can take your tax bill down to zero, but they can also be paid, once it gets to zero, it can keep going. You can get a cash refund. So if your tax bill is already zero, which might be some retirees or even wealthy people that have money sitting in a big SMSF, they might have a tax bill of zero. That means any income they've made from dividends and franking credits gets paid to them uh, in cash. So that's the controversial bit. Right. That explains all of those franking credits boomer memes I've been seeing floating around. Yeah, exactly right. Yeah. The argument from retirees is that that's an important part of their income. That's what they're relying on as income. And then the other argument is that a lot of wealthy people just have massive portfolios of stocks sitting in SMSF. They might not be working. Maybe they're just earning money from these stocks. Um, should they then need to pay tax and should they be getting the benefit of a franking credit cash refund, which is a pretty big benefit if your tax bill is zero. I think that's the first time I've heard anyone explain franking credits and I've actually understood too, Kylie. Well done. Oh, thank <laughs> I've God. I've so many experts have a crack at it and um, that was really, really helpful. Bless oh, you. Good. Um, <laughs> on to our favourite question. If you're getting a tax return this year, Kylie, what are you going to spend it on? Are you going to spend it? Uh, I'm definitely spending my um, refund on stocks. <laughs> I know that sounds like the obvious answer, but I'm definitely spending it on stocks. I think now's the time to buy stocks. The market has crashed. I know it's going up again, but um, I think it's a good opportunity. I think there are quite a few good opportunities in there that I want to take advantage of. That's a great answer and very on brand for your role with us. <laughs> Thank you. Joining us now is Nicola Middlemas, and Nicola is our insurance senior writer. So Nicola knows pretty much everything you'd want to know about life insurance, health insurance, income protection, all that good stuff. Nicola, thanks for joining us. It's a big call, but yeah, thanks for having me. No pressure. Nicola, what do we need to know around tax time in this area of insurance? What are, what are some of the key things people need to bear in mind? Yeah, I think one of the most important things that um, in terms of the lifetime health cover loading and taxes is that they're actually two completely different things. So they normally get mixed up because everybody thinks about them when it comes to tax time. So they sort of just get put together in the same box, but they're completely different. They impact completely different people. You know, in some cases you might be impacted by both, but they are not the same thing. So tell us about lifetime health cover. What What is that loading? How does that work? Yeah, so lifetime health cover loading is related to how old you are, whereas the Medicare levy surcharge, which is, you know, to do with taxes, that's actually related to how much you earn. So for the lifetime health cover, that's particularly important if you've turned 31 in the last year or you're about to turn 31 before 1st of July. So that's because in Australia, if you don't have hospital insurance before the 1st of July, immediately after your 31st birthday, you're going to end up paying more for your policy down the line if you decide that you want health insurance. Um, it adds a 2% charge on top of your hospital cover. So for every year that you're over 30, you pay 2% extra. Um, that means if you're 35, you'll pay 10% extra. If you're 40, you'll pay 20% extra and so on. The charge stays there for at least 10 years, it has to be 10 years of continuous cover. So if you break, you know, that doesn't count. But if you buy health insurance before the deadlines, so that's before 1st of July, following your 31st birthday, uh, then you'll never have to pay that fee. 
So this is why we hear a lot of ads around tax time about, are you turning 31 and and why you need to potentially look at getting health insurance. You mentioned they're two different things. So the lifetime health cover is the loading that's applied to your private health cover should you choose to get it. What happens if you don't get, if you decide not to get private health cover? Does it affect you at all then? If you decide never to get it ever again, no. That has no impact on you whatsoever. Uh, you'll, you know, you'll still be charged on your tax, your typical Medicare taxes, but no, there is no impact. But you know, if you decide further down the line that whether you know, quite young now, um, in the first stage of your life, your needs do change as you get older. So you could end up wanting to have a family. You could end up having a serious health problem, and you might reconsider your needs further down the line. You might really want to have that hospital insurance. That you know, as a someone in their late 20s or very early 30s, it doesn't really seem like something you desperately need right now. It can be really easily put in that box of something that I'm not going to need that, I'm going to be fine. But I think it's really important to think about whether you'll feel the same, you know, when you're 50 or when, when you're having a family or, you know, that sort of thing. So definitely something to consider before you turn 31. Yeah. And, you know, you do get a few months after you turn 31. So it's it's really confusing the way that they phrase it. But you turn 31 and then you get until the 1st of July following your 31st birthday. So, you know, if you're born in August, that's great. You get almost a full extra year. So check it out by then. Otherwise, uh, yeah, like you said, it's a 10-year penalty. So you mentioned the Medicare levy surcharge. So what exactly is that and how does that fit into this conversation? Yeah, so the Medicare levy surcharge is, you know, what some people sometimes get mixed up with in terms of the lifetime health cover loading. And the Medicare levy surcharge doesn't have anything to do with how old you are, but it is related to how much you earn. So if you earn more than $90,000 a year, or you and your partner earn a combined income of more than $180,000 a year, you'll be taxed between one and 2% of your income if you don't have health insurance. That means that you could actually be paying more with taxes and not getting health insurance. You could just go and buy a health insurance policy and you will have, you know, even if you buy a limited policy, you're gonna have some cover and you'll be paying less in tax. It is completely win-win, but it's something that not a lot of people know, not a lot of people understand. So 100%, I would say go and look into it. And Nicola, what about income protection? How does that work into end of financial year? Because with coronavirus, a lot of people's incomes and employment have been impacted in the last financial year. So what would be your tip around that? The only really tax time tip that I have for income protection is, you know, that it it is tax deductible, those premiums. That's because you can claim anything that is related to your ability to earn a living, which includes income protection insurance. Remember though, that only applies if you bought your income protection insurance outside of your super. If your income protection is inside of your super, which you know a lot of Aussies do have income protection inside your super, you know that's already tax-free, so you can't claim that back on your taxes. The only problem is that, I know obviously there is the redundancy option involved in income protection insurance. That's not really available at the moment due to coronavirus. A lot of insurers pulled out of that. I'm not sure whether you could get that through an underwriter, but you definitely can't find that easily in the Australian market at the moment. If you do already have income protection insurance, you know, it will still cover you for um, injury illness if you want to buy it now. And yeah, those premiums are tax deductible. Has anything else changed in terms of insurance because of coronavirus that people should be aware of this tax time? Yeah, I mean, obviously there, there have been changes everywhere and insurance <laughs> insurance hasn't been exempt from that. Yeah, I guess that lack of the redundancy cover is one of the biggest changes, but In terms of health insurance, we also saw a big hold on health insurance. So I'm not really sure if this is 
you know, specific to tax time, but it is an important thing to remember. All non-emergency surgeries were temporarily banned and a lot of the benefits of the extra policies, we couldn't really reclaim them. So we saw a lot of health insurers, you know, trying to figure out what they could do in return. And they put a halt on, you know, every year there is supposed to be a premium increase and that was supposed to happen in April. There was a halt on that. So if you're thinking about getting health insurance, you can still get it at last year's prices. And also you can pay for health insurance up to 12 months in advance. So you can essentially get 12 months of health insurance at last year's prices for the following year. I know it's a tricky time for everybody, you know, everyone's struggling with money, but it really is a good time to think about this because that that freeze on prices won't be here forever. And if you already have health insurance, because a lot of those services that would be covered in our extras and like dental and stuff like that were paused, now that the lockdowns are starting to ease, is now the right time to maybe take advantage of that and go get your checkup at the dentist? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I definitely have done that in the past two weeks. I've got two new pairs of glasses and I've been to the dentist twice. So I was really worried about not making the most of my extras. My policy renews on the 1st of July, so I'm trying to get the most of my benefits before those caps renew. Uh, and yeah, you know, social distancing measures still in place. Like my experience was that it was all it was all really safe. I went to the opticians, there was me and I think one other person in there. And then when I went to the dentist, you know, be aware that they were all gowned up and that can be a little bit intimidating if you're not used to the dentist. But essentially, you know, I'm paying around $12 a week for my extras policy and I claimed around about $400 back just in two visits. So it's really easy to do. You're not breaking any laws. I would 100% encourage people to do that. It's a good case of use it or lose it, isn't it, um, with this kind of stuff? Yeah. So you have to be strategic. Yeah, for sure. I mean, you don't get those caps back. You know, it's just you get certain limits every single year. If you don't use them, that's it. They're wiped. They're wiped completely again. They start anew. So just use them. Why not? Like, okay, we've missed out on a couple of months of not being able to use these, but you've still got time to use them. And Nicola, what would you do with your tax return? this year if you get one <laughs> well um i was supposed to be going back to england for a trip just next month so obviously that's on hold for the moment but hopefully you know that's just a bit more spending money that i can take with me to that so you know again i guess that's another positive from it it's been very easy to save through all of this so i can go home and maybe do some more exciting things and uh spend a bit more time with the family love it add it to the travel fund So we've got our home loans expert, Richard Witten, on the line to talk to us about end of financial year tips for property investors. What have you got for us, Rich? They're pretty basic tips, but you really do need to follow them. Um, If you're a property investor, the first thing is uh, keep a record of everything. That's the main thing. Keep a record of all your costs or expenses. So that's uh, things like your cost in maintaining the property. That's even things like the commission you pay to the real estate agent if they're managing the property for you, if you've got landlord or or, um, home insurance, all those kind of things. Keep your records and keep records of your income. Come tax time as an investor, you have to declare any money you've made on the property. So that's obviously the rent you get from the property. But it's also if you, I don't know, say the, the tenant caused some damage and you kept part of their bond or you got an insurance payout, all those count as income, so keep your records. But the main thing is really records of your costs. Because as an investor, you can actually claim a lot of stuff back on tax and you can therefore reduce your total like tax bill at the end of the financial year 
and you can save yourself some money. Uh, but then there's, I guess the second tip really is therefore knowing what you can claim and what you can't claim for all of those deductions. Because it's, it's actually quite a lot of things. If you're in a property investor, you can claim things like the interest on your investment mortgage. So you, you, know, you borrow money to pay back your property you've bought, you pay a lot of money probably in, on your mortgage, and there's a percentage of that will be interest. So you pay back the loan itself, maybe that's like 60, 70% of the total monthly cost. But a good chunk of that is the interest that your lender charges on top. You can claim that on your tax and it will actually reduce your total tax costs overall. And yeah, things like maintaining or repairing the property, real estate agent commission, insurance, all those things can be deducted. It's a pretty generous sort of setup if you know what you're doing. Rich, because it is generous, but it's a little complex, would you recommend property investors using an accountant, for example, just to get across all of that? Is it is it worth it in this case? Yeah, I think you definitely should because there's probably lots of things you don't know you can claim and you want to obviously maximize the amount you can claim. So definitely an accountant is the way to do that. You can even claim your accountant costs as well. So definitely worth investigating. What about new home buyers or people who are looking to buy this financial year? I've heard a lot of people who may have thought the property market was out of their reach in the past with property prices potentially dropping. What should people bear in mind if they're just starting to think about putting their toe in the property market? Well, I think the advice never really changes. Do your research, look at the prices and look at the actual prices today rather than what you think will happen. Um, obviously, a lot of talk around prices dropping and they may drop. They, I mean, I think we'll see some more data coming out probably very soon that will show some sort of decline, but you can't really bank on it being a definite you know, 20% drop in six months. And Richard, if you get a tax return this year, what will you be using it for? I was going to say the responsible thing buying a bicycle, but that's not very irresponsible because I mean, that's healthy, right? So reckless answer, probably just some expensive whiskey. I think that's more of a, a fun, frivolous thing. Whiskey and a bicycle, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, together, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Buy a cheap bicycle, spend the rest on whiskey. We'll be interviewing Richard in Traction that's right. next time we talk to him. Sally, it's my favourite part of these kind of interviews. I get to interview you. Sally, for new listeners, used to be our credit cards editor and has had many, many years on the board looking at credit and, of course, credit's dark side, which is debt. Sally, what should people do around tax time when it comes to having debt or, you know, credit card? So when it comes to credit cards and debt, there's not really anything that you have to do for end of financial year, but it's just a really good time to take stock of your finances. So if you have a credit card that's collecting interest, it might be time to move it to a card with 0% on balance transfers. And some of these cards offer interest-free periods for 12 months to 26 months. So it can be a really good like breathing room to just pay off some of those debts without interest. Uh, if you have a credit card and you're not paying interest and maybe you're earning points or um, just using it to free up cash flow, it's also just a really good time to start comparing products because if you got a card like, you know, at the beginning of the financial year or a couple of months ago, you could be missing out on a more competitive interest rate or bonus points offer or whatever that may be because these promotional deals change all the time. So it's just a really good time to sit down and take a look at what you currently have and consider switching. Of course, I'm going to plug Finder. There is a great option to compare everything side by side. 
Um, or if you have the Finder app as well and you've connected your bank accounts to that, you'll get notifications to let you know when there is a more competitive offer there. So that's a really easy thing to do. Um, and the same goes with loans as well. It's just a good time to have a look at the interest that you're getting, see if you could potentially consolidate, switch to a more competitive rate. It's a good time just to do a bit of a financial audit, isn't it? End of financial year, you've got to drag all that stuff out anyway and get in that mindset. So no, it's a really good point. And you never want to be what I've heard the phrase is a sleeping beauty, which is a customer that never checks what deal they're on, um, including credit cards. So keep checking. Sally, what are you going to spend your tax return on if you get one? I was going to say concerts, but none of those are happening. Oh, sad. Uh, I don't know. Maybe some vintage shopping or something. Nice. Or something fun for my apartment since I'm going to be spending so much time here. What about you, Kate? Yeah, I know. I sort of feel like I'll have to go into nesting mode. There's not much else I can do. But I'm thinking Alex has got me excited about the sales. I'm thinking like stuff for my house, like nice bed linen, homewares. Got a feeling I'll be spending a lot of time at home this winter. Wow, so we covered a lot of ground in today's episode, Kate. Yeah, I learned a lot. That was amazing. And for all of the tips that our fantastic Finder experts gave us on the show, make sure to check out the show notes at finder.com.au slash podcast for all of the info. There's plenty there. So if you heard anything and thought, wait, what? I need to know more about franking credits. Don't worry. It's all there. I will be reviewing it myself. And as always, thanks to everyone for listening. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and wherever uh, you listen to Pocket Money. We appreciate it. Join us on Instagram at Pocket Money Podcast for all the behind the scenes, money tips, and also, you know, just some memes to make you feel better about your poor financial habits. That's it for this time around, guys. Pocket Money is hosted by Sally and Kate, that's me, produced by Ankita Shetty and Josh Liverland, and the edit is from Brianna Ansaldo of Bambi Media. Talk to you next time. Thanks for listening to Pocket Money from Finder. Head over to finder.com.au slash podcast for the show notes for this episode. The Finder podcast is intended to provide you with tips, tools, and strategies that will help you make better decisions. Although we're licensed and authorized, we don't provide financial advice. So please consider your own situation or get advice before making any decisions based on anything in our show. Thanks for listening.